0: All right, so y'all didn't get any um, study guides today. Instead of a study guide, you got this. This is a take-home thing. Uh, It's a a refrigerator magnet material or something like that for you to remember um, where we've been together in this series. So um, we've been doing this for seven weeks now, talking about dating and uh, relationships. These are the 10 ground rules for um, real romance. And today we're focusing on really number nine, a little bit on 10 as well, but number nine Uh, The ground rule of the day is uh, good relationships. Healthy, strong, vibrant relationships always are going somewhere. You're always headed somewhere. There's a destination that you both know about and you know what it's gonna take to get from where you are to where you're going. And it always takes intentionality, being intentional together. So that's the question today. Whether you're single or married or anywhere in between, what are your intentions in relationships? What are your intentions as far as romance is concerned? If you're single and dating, what are you dating for? What does dating mean to you? Is it just a hookup culture, a hookup scene, or is it? are you looking for something specific? Do you have deeper intentions and are you intentionally chasing after those things? If you're married, are you done being intentional? Was the wedding day an end of something or was it a beginning of something? What are your intentions if you're in a relationship? My contention today is that good relationships always go somewhere. Dating, serious, engaged, married, they're always going somewhere no matter what. It's my belief, you can take it or leave it, my opinion, that the worst thing you can do when you're in a relationship is to coast. It's better to fight than to coast. If you're just on cruise control or on autopilot for too long, what that tells me is that you don't even care enough to fight. <laughs> you don't even care enough to dig your heels in and engage in, in some kind of conflict for the sake of your relationship. And I understand everybody's going to go through seasons, right, where you're, where you're just coasting. You're on cruise control, autopilot, you're just maintaining altitude. Everybody goes through those seasons. But man, if those seasons last just a little bit too long, how easy is it for us to start feeling like we're held hostage by this relationship that's going nowhere? How easy is it for us to start going from being crazy in love to just feeling like we're going crazy, like we're just stuck. How easy is it to just get stuck in a relationship? The longer you're together, the easier it gets to just get stuck. You get comfortable, and you should be comfortable together, but how simply does comfort become complacency if you don't watch it? And so I want to challenge all of you really, but especially those of you that are in marriages or long-term committed relationships to pay close attention to being intentional with each other. And then not allow yourselves to slip into uh, that cruise control or to get into that rut. The first advice that the Bible gives to married couples or couples that are in a serious committed relationship together is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God says, this is why a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, or cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. What's interesting is that Jesus quotes this very passage when he's talking about marriage and he's actually talking about marriage and divorce. In Matthew 19, he says the same exact words and then he says, he adds on to it an addendum, and he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has put together, let no one separate. I think when most of us hear that the the phrase, one flesh, they'll become one flesh, we think about a man and a woman uh, engaging in intimacy, physical, sexual intimacy, and that's how two people become one flesh. And that's one way to look at it. I don't think that's the fullness of what this passage is telling us about romance about two people that are committed exclusively to each other, especially within the bond of marriage. What happens when two people are committed in that way to each other and only each other is that I think what the Bible is saying is that they have between them a new life. They have in their relationship a new existence, a new being. It is alive. Your relationship is alive. And you know what you expect when something is alive. When you have a plant that's alive, you're doing better than than me with plants. But if you have a plant that you've kept alive, you expect growth. You expect it to flourish. You expect blooms and blossoms at certain times. You expect fruits at certain times. The same thing is true with a relationship. If you have a child together, you've created a new life together. You expect certain growth patterns with that child. and, And you expect them to stay on a certain trajectory. The same is true with this life you have between you. With or without plants, with or without children, you already have a new life. This one flesh, this one body, this new life that you are sharing together. And so how are you nourishing that? How do you grow it? How does it move and evolve and change? So the point is, when you're uh, just dating, when you're boyfriend and girlfriend, or you're just on the dating scene, you're not just having fun. You're looking for this life. You're looking to nurture a new life with one person. You're looking, that's the, that's the end game. You're not just playing games. It's going someplace. It's going somewhere. It's life. It's a process of evolution. It's, it's got a destination. It's going somewhere. And so when you're in a relationship, you talk about where this is going. Where are we headed You turn toward each other instead of away from each other. You turn the screens off, the TV and your phones off, and you talk about where we're going, where we've been, and you celebrate where we've come from, but you also talk about where we're going and what it's gonna take to get from here to there. What I wanna say today to married couples especially is that that doesn't stop when you're married. When you were dating, you shared your dreams, your aspirations, your hopes for the future. And it's almost like sometimes our wedding day put an end to, to all of that. Like it was an end of our romantic life instead of the beginning of one. And we don't talk about the same dreams and hopes for the future and aspirations that we once did. And so I want to talk about how to be intentional in relationships today. Instead of making you here listen to me for 40 minutes like I've done for the last seven weeks, I want to uh, bring out some other people that you're gonna hear. Um, in addition to just me, some very, very brave souls who have decided that they're willing to come and, and give you a little window into their relationships and to who they are and how they got to this point in their life together. And so if you would please um, welcome to the stage with me Stacy and Judah all and Sarah and Daniel Swatner. All right, good. Nobody ran off. That's good. You all hung in there. So, uh, anybody nervous? We good? All right, look at everybody. You sure you're not nervous? Okay, is family. Okay, good. So, uh, I'd like to just start by letting y'all get a glimpse of where they've come from. And so, I thought maybe um, Stacy, if you wouldn't mind, um, is telling us a little bit about uh, how y'all met.
1: All right. So... I was single until I was 38 years old, and um, some friends encouraged me to do the whole online profile thing, and so I decided to create an online profile on Match. Um, Being a minister. It was pretty hard to date. That was a little bit scary for most people. But I decided, you know what, I'm just going to create my profile and put on there and be honest. And one of my lines was that I was a jewelry buyer who felt a call into full-time ministry and now I'm a hospital chaplain. And so I was just thought I'd be honest. Um, About a week after I put my profile online, I saw I got matched with Judah and he actually had his professional headshot as his profile picture which nice. was the winner for me. I was <laughs> like this stands out with all this other crazy that's out there is the <laughs> professional headshot. So and he winked at me so I winked back and then we had one little uh, a few little interchanges and this is what got it for me. He the first thing he said to me in the first email that he sent was So I'm really curious to hear more of your story about how you went from a jewelry buyer to a hospital chaplain. And that was what really spoke to me, was that he cared about really who I was and and what my story was about. And so we met a few weeks later on a Sunday night at a bar in Midtown and spent about three hours talking very honestly about everything. We were both older. I knew what I wanted. He um, was 36 or 37 and had been divorced for five years, so really knew what he wanted to And we were open, honest. And honestly, four months later, we were engaged. And then six months later, we were married. Whoa. So that happened all right. pretty fast. That's
0: quick. That's quick. All right, Judah. Uh, all right. That's a fast track. So, Judah, tell us what uh, what made you so sure. Well, Having been in a previous marriage, um, that, that relationship was was tough. Um, it, you know, we had our good times, but a lot of that relationship, I felt, was very hard. And it didn't seem like relationships should be like that. And so being with Stacy, just in the first month, um, I knew that, that it was easy. Uh, we communicated easily. We, she was intelligent. We had good conversation. I could just sit with her and be comfortable. And it was just very easy. And so I knew within the first month that this was right. And uh, it just, it felt comfortable. And, and I knew this was how it's supposed to be. And, and we didn't fight then. And it's funny, we, we've only had a couple of fights in our whole relationship. And, and something just told me that, that it was easy and that this was where I was supposed to be. Awesome, thank you. Well guys, uh, this is Sarah and Daniel and uh, the Swantners, nurse. And Sarah, could you tell us how you guys met?
2: Sure. Um, So we met probably when we were about 15 um, at summer camp. Um, So So, uh, I I started going to this camp when I was in middle school and Daniel even younger, but we didn't go to the same session until we were in high school. Um, So we met in high school and um, started a friendship. Um, We're close at camp and worked summers out there. And then we both ended up going to UT. (laughs) Um, So once we got to UT... uh, Our friendship continued to grow I had always kind of had a crush on Daniel but his my friendship was you know more important to me than um, anything else and I always knew that if we started dating that might ruin that Um, and he had a girlfriend before and when I liked him and so the timing was just never quite right but um, so we continued to continued our friendship um, got really close Um, and then probably our junior year of college we kind of just one night both kind of just finally admitted that we liked each other. I mean, my friends had told me all the time, you know, you and Daniel would be perfect together, y'all should date, and I was, no, no. Um, and he had even kind of made it clear to me a few times before that that, you know, that he had liked me more than just a friend and um, just weren't quite ready to make that, that leap. But um, finally, we kind of just admitted it and decided to go for it. So um, junior, for all of our junior year of college, we started dating um, and I, I knew right away, you know, that once we started dating, this was either going to be forever or just ruin, you know, a great friendship. And luckily, <laughs> luckily it's, it's lasted, you know, at least four years, so <laughs> awesome. hopefully many more. Awesome. Great.
0: And so, Daniel, um, how have you seen Sarah change? I'd like to know, like, uh, from the time you met her when she was 15 at camp, uh, how, has, how has she changed as a person?
3: Yeah, well, before I answer that, I have to throw in that um, I was also a waiter at Sarah's sorority house, uh, so wow. that definitely helped uh, speed up that relationship. Um, How you get that job? I think a lot of
0: <laughs> the guys going to college. Are it was like, highly
3: you know, coveted, I'll say that. <laughs> um, well, as far as uh, like you said, you know, we've known each other since we were fifteen, um, so I've seen we, we've seen each other change a lot uh, over those years. Um, I'll, I'll kind of. Uh, jump to when we got married. So just to give you a little background, we got married, I had just finished school, uh, grad school. Sarah had been working, she'd already finished uh, her degree. Um, We went on our honeymoon, uh, came back. Uh, The next day we moved to Houston. The next day Sarah started a new job and then I started a new job right after that. So it was a lot of change, kind of all at one time. Um, And we were to be quite frank, very scared. Um, It was scary moving to Houston. Uh, We didn't have a church, we didn't have a support system. Uh, we knew some people in town, but we were you know, newlyweds and a lot of our friends just weren't really in that same um, part of life. Um, so I've just seen Sarah, she's um, ever since we've been married, I've just seen her be become so much uh, more courageous. Um, she's really uh, become a leader here at church, um, at her job, uh, in her friend circle. Um, so I've just seen her mature and I've really seen God kind of guide her through that process. Um, and I think it's really just helped both of our faith become a lot stronger.
0: Um, we've tried to be faithful to God, and I, I really think that God's been faithful to us. Yeah, cool. All right, you guys take a break for a second, because I want to ask the same question to you about Judah. Have you seen him uh, changing at all since you got together, or what? what's that look like?
1: I have. Um, when I, that first night that I met, we met in person, and we started talking a lot about, you know, what were what were important things to us. Obviously, my faith and and my relationship with God is very important. And Judah was coming into this pretty skeptical. Um, he had been hurt by the church in different ways and just real skeptical of religion and all of that. And so it was an odd match that we were coming together and really finding a connection with each other because my career, my ministry, my life was um, was in, about the church and, and my relationship with God. And so but there was something about him in that moment that I knew he was open to growing and he was open to asking questions and open to learning. And that's exactly what I've seen over these last three or four years is, um, he, is he has opened himself up to exposing himself to things, coming back to church. And we found this church and um, now he is co- helping coordinate the Thursday Morning Men's Group. He was a part of the last teaching cohort we are having more conversations at home that are revolving around kind of our beliefs and our values and how we want to raise our family. And that is something that I, I've seen that growth in him, but it's, it's been a part of our family's growth and mm-hmm. our relationship's growth. It hasn't just solely been with him, but because of his openness and God's faithfulness, I knew that I never wanted to push that. I never wanted to be the one pushing him to go to church or pushing him to go to a Bible study. I just kept praying that God would continue to woo him into a relationship with with God, and that's what's happened. And so I think we're right kind of at the beginning of a lot of that growth, but that's what I've seen happen over this last, especially this last year since we've been a part of the story.
0: What was your honest reaction when Judah came home from coffee with Giovanna and said, I'm leading a Bible study? (laughs)
1: I I didn't think he was being serious because he's a very sarcastic person. So when he said they want me to lead a Bible study, I'm like, no way, no how. Uh, That's
0: awesome. All right. Would would y'all thank these couples for uh, sharing their souls with us? All right. That was not easy for them to do, man. And uh, a lot of courage, so thank y'all. And uh, y'all are, are welcome for not asking you instead. I'll get you next time, some of y'all. So uh, one thing I noticed about the couples uh, that just shared and the couples that shared at 940 as well is they have this sense of clarity. There was clarity when they met. There was clarity when they started dating. There was clarity now. It's just like there's this sense of direction, purpose, uh, divine intervention, divine guidance in their relationship. They've been walking by faith basically um, since they met in different ways. And, and that's kind of a stark contrast to what I've um, been gleaning from uh, people on the dating scene today. Because the name of the game on the dating scene is not clarity or, or focus or direction uh, or ambition or intention. It is ambiguity. Ambiguity. The name of the game on the dating scene is ambiguity. Nobody wants to put a label on any relationship they're in anymore. Because labels feel constricting. They feel like you're a slave to them. And and freedom feels like you know ambiguity. Freedom is more like a lack of labels. And so we want to keep things as vague as possible in our relationships. And I'm telling you, what's happening because of the vagueness in our dating lives for single people, it's making all the single people crazy. And like like single people are starting to say things that let logical people don't say. They'll contradict themselves in in ways that you wouldn't expect otherwise educated, smart people to say. And one minor example of this was an email I received from a woman in her 30s who goes to the story and she was like, I've been seeing this guy for almost five years now and I still don't know if he's my boyfriend. Five months now, that would be really bad. Five months, (laughs) I still don't know. That happens too, you wouldn't be surprised. If he's my boyfriend. We hang out, we go out, we make out. I don't think he's seeing anybody else. I know I haven't been, but I guess we both could since we both haven't talked about it. It's so confusing, she said. And this kind of stuff was everywhere in the conversations I was having, stuff I was reading with single, uh, about single people in the dating life. And it's just making people crazy because this kind of confusion just kills connection. This kind of ambiguity just slaughters any possibility of real romance. This kind of label free. Um morphing sort of existence together where you're sort of together but maybe not that just, it eventually becomes a glorified hookup. It's not really more than just like a sort of a friendship with benefits kind of a thing and people need to know where we stand. We, we crave that kind of clarity in all facets of our lives and we should try not to be so ambiguous. I think the answer to ambiguity is intention. Intentionality. Clarity. So uh, I cannot finish this series on dating and real romance without talking about the most romantic story in all the Bible, which is the story of Boaz and Ruth. You can find their story um, in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, um, just after the book of Judges. And uh, the, the reason their story is so romantic is because they're very clear with each other from the very beginning. They're intentional about their direction in life, separately and together. They're direct and intentional. They're very upfront. Let me introduce you to Ruth. Ruth was a young woman, probably uh, uh, late teens, early 20s. She was a foreign woman uh, from a, a place called Moab, so she wasn't a part of God's you know, chosen Israelite community. And she was penniless. She was broke. Those were kind of three strikes against a woman that usually led to a life on the streets a life of prostitution or death, a destitute kind of a life an existence and so um, Ruth has lost her husband he he died, and so she has decided to stay with her dead husband's mother because her husband also died, and so her her dead husband's mother Naomi was also alone and facing all these awful prospects. And so Ruth stayed by her side. Even though she wasn't contractually or legally bound to do so. This just shows you the character of Ruth. She stays with Naomi and she goes back to Naomi's hometown with her instead of going back to her own hometown and maybe putting her life back together. That's just who Ruth was, if you can imagine. If you've ever known somebody who's just good from the inside. That's who Ruth was. Who's was just good. So she followed Naomi home. And they didn't have any food to eat. And so Ruth went to provide for herself and Naomi. And so she put food on the table by gleaning. Gleaning was the Old Testament uh, version of social security. It was God's commandment that whenever the workers in the fields are bringing in a harvest, if they miss something on the first pass, they're supposed to leave it behind and not go back and get it so that the poor, the impoverished people in town can come behind and, and glean. And that was their food. And so Ruth, young Ruth... Good from the core, Ruth. She's out there gleaning for herself and her mother-in-law. She's gleaning the fields owned by Boaz, a wealthy, landed gentleman who owned the field where she was gleaning. Boaz sees this young woman gleaning on her own, which was probably not super common, but he didn't recognize her. She was new. She got his attention. And so he asks his workers who that girl is. Immediately, just seizing the moment when she gets his attention, he sees some goodness in her. You know, people that are good from the core, you can kind of see it. And I've been saying this to single people on the dating scene. Like the, the profile picture is not always the best representation, unless it's your business shot from, uh, from like Judah, man. Uh, you could see the goodness. In Ruth, And so he asks his workers, who is this woman? And they, they explain that she's a widow and she's taking care of her dead husband's mother, Naomi. It turns out Boaz is related to Naomi, their distant relatives. And so not only is Boaz taken with Ruth's compassion, because whatever re- what, what other reason would she have to do this for her mother-in-law, of all people, who she has no connection to anymore... Because they're both widowed. What other reason besides compassion? Just being moved in your heart. Just being a good person from the inside. And so he's moved by that, but he's also appreciative that Ruth is taking care of his relative. So immediately he sees something special. And here's where Boaz, to me, is set apart from many men on the dating scene today. Not all, but many. Boaz likes what he sees. And he immediately makes a move. Immediately. He's not playing games. He's not wasting time. In Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, listen to me. Don't go and glean anywhere else. So he's saying, I want to keep you close. Like, just stay here in my field. And there's other fields. I know there's plenty of other fields to go and glean. I want you to glean my fields. And this is their first conversation. Very direct. Very forward. Don't go anywhere else. Stay here with the women who work. For me, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after, uh, along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. So he's already in a very romantic, chivalrous way, told the men, who knows what happened to women who were on their own in those days and places like this. He said, you will not touch this woman. And so he's giving her that kind of hedge of protection saying, you're safe. Do You know what that meant to a woman like Ruth who had those three strikes against her? You're safe extremely romantic, you're safe here, come here and only here. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you whenever you're thirsty, go drink some water in the jars. And at this, she bowed down her face to the ground and asked him, what have I done to find favor with you? I'm a foreigner, what have I done to find favor? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Listen, this is their first conversation. That's some wordy stuff right there. He's ready. He had it loaded up and ready. He didn't he didn't need to play games. He wasn't trying to look for a fling. He wasn't just trying to make a pass at her. He was making a move. There was no ambiguity, no games, no head games, just clarity. He liked her and he went for it and then he told her what he liked about her in their first conversation. Gentlemen, listen up. He told her what he liked about her, not just how good she looked or how measurements or anything like she said, I like you because I've seen your heart. I like you. I'm drawn to you because I've seen your compassion. And then immediately, he invites her to dinner. Right after that, he invites her to dinner right then. And they sit down and eat. And Ruth, it says, eats more than she can even handle. Can you imagine what that was like for Ruth? Ruth be provided for, and for being abandoned, feeling abandoned by life. She had all that she wanted and more. Then he tells his workers in front of Ruth, he says to his workers, he says, you guys, you're going to take care of Ruth. When I'm not around, whenever she comes to glean, you guys are not going to let her glean her own crops anymore. You're going to pull up the stalks for her and hand them to her. Which I know doesn't sound like much to us now, but you got to understand 2,700 years ago, this was Richard Gere in this department store with Julia Roberts. Anything she wants, guys, anything she wants. Like this was that. And this was the most romantic thing you could do for a woman in Ruth's position. This is probably the most romantic thing that had ever happened to her. He tells them in front of her, you will take care of her. And you will even pick up the stalks for her so that she doesn't have to pick them herself. And it's clear to us that not long after that, Ruth is moved. Ruth Ruth then takes the initiative. So she doesn't need to wait around and, and, and let Boaz do all the work. Ruth gets dressed up. She puts on perfume, a little makeup. She goes to a party at Boaz's house. Ruth is not invited to this party. But she goes anyway. Can you picture Ruth, young Ruth, good from the inside. She goes to this party with one thing in mind, one thing intended. She doesn't make a scene. She just waits until she's alone with Boaz. Boaz. And this is what happens in Ruth chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, that's probably a smart move. Anyway, He went over to lie down at the far end of a grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. I can't really uh, spend the time to explain that whole thing, the guardian redeemer thing. All you need to know, really, is that um, Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. Ruth is proposing. Which would have been forward for a woman to do today. This was their third conversation. Would have been quite forward for any woman to do today. But if you can imagine a woman, a penniless, foreign, widowed woman taking the initiative and saying, marry me. I like you. And you like me. We can have a future together. Spread your garment over me and make me your wife. 2,700 years ago. Extraordinary. Extremely direct. She says, marry me. Essentially I think she's saying if you want to be with me if you really don't want me to go and glean other fields because I can she's saying put a ring on my finger make me your wife and let's make this official And because Boaz is a man of God, because he knows that a woman like Ruth deserves the dignity and respect of a woman in in a committed marriage kind of relationship. Because he knows that she's not just there to play games. That her survival is on the line. Her hopes and dreams are on the line. Because he knows all of this. And, and, because of who Boaz is and who Boaz's mother was. You see, Boaz was raised by Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute before she met Boaz. Boaz's father and had Boaz. Do you think Boaz knew a little bit about what it was like for a woman who the whole world had turned against, whose deck was stacked against her? Do you think Boaz knew from the stories his mama told him and the things other people told him about his mama? Do you think he had a little more compassion in his heart for a woman like Ruth when she stood in front of him and said, marry me. He did take Ruth. She became his wife it wasn't easy he had some le- legal hoops to jump through he had some technicalities he had to buy a whole piece of land for some reason to make Ruth his wife. It's complicated how the legalities worked out, but he had to part ways with a lot of money to become Ruth's husband, but he wasted no time. He knew exactly what he wanted, what he needed to do, what God wanted him to do, and he made Ruth his wife. He had intentionality, focus, and direction, and he seized the moment. And if I can just be frank, as we near the end of this long sermon series about dating and real relationships, listen, if I can just say this, a lot of people... A lot of relationships are lacking the intentionality of Boaz and Ruth. A lot of people on the dating scene, a lot of couples lack that focus and lack that clear direction to seize the moment and say, this is it and we know this is it, let's make it official. This is where we're going, period. I had, co- I had coffee with a couple not long ago, was maybe a year ago and we were still over in the, in the gym at that time, if you're new here, uh, The gym was where we started, just across the parking lot. And and I had coffee on a Friday morning with this couple that had called me and and Giovanna there um, to talk to us because um, they had been dating for five years and they'd been engaged for two years. And now um, they were about to move in together and they wanted to let Pastor Gio and I know because they were also in leadership of a chapter group and they wanted to get our blessing to move in together. Well, they were moving in together the next day. So I guess it wouldn't have mattered if we had given them a blessing or not. It was happening on Saturday. And it just seemed like a formality when we sat down and they told us that this was happening. Um, and I, they asked me what I thought. And I said, look, guys, it's not really so much about the chapter group or your leadership at the church. I just I genuinely want to know why you're not married yet. You've been you've been dating in exclusively for five years, engaged for two years. What's the holdup? What are you waiting for? And immediately when I asked, "What are you waiting for?" Her eyes darted to him. She looked at, straight at him, telling me exactly what she was waiting for, um, and whose idea it was to uh, to not get married but to just move in together. She made it uh, pretty clear that she didn't want to move in together before marriage, that she wanted to go ahead and get married first, but he was maybe dragging his feet or scared of the commitment. He was being indecisive. And so I pressed him on the, on the matter. It wasn't comfortable. It's not a comfortable conversation to have somebody. I said, what's holding you up? And she's sitting right there. So what's he gonna say? I, and he, said, he said, we just don't have the money. We don't have the money to get married, and I thought to myself, I didn't say this part, but I thought 99% of the couples who've ever gotten married in the history of the world had no money, like they had nothing. Like this whole idolatry of the $30,000 wedding, like let's go broke getting married, is just, it's a new phenomenon, it's a stupid one, but it's also a new phenomenon, and you don't need that. But he said, I wanna buy her a ring, I wanna give her the dream wedding, and that's what we're waiting for, and I asked her point blank, I said, do you need these things? Do you need the ring, do you need the dream wedding? And she couldn't even speak, y'all. She just started to cry. I mean, tears just filled her eyes and she she, she was without words, speechless. And She just shook her head. And I looked at him and I said, you can keep making these excuses if you want, but the girl you say you love the most is begging you, begging you to man up and marry her and be decisive. I said, you're free to move in together. Don't get me wrong, you're free to do whatever you need to do. But before you do, I asked him, I said, I want you to imagine the look in her eyes every time she says to her friends and her family, yeah, I'm living with my boyfriend. And then imagine the look in her eyes if you gave her the opportunity to say husband instead of boyfriend. What a difference that would make in her life. You know what he did? He got up and left. He walked right out of that Starbucks and I assumed I would never hear from him again. I figured I had crossed the line as I'm prone to do. (laughs) And he was mad and that would be it. That afternoon, Gio and I got a text from him. This is part of it. He said, thanks for this morning. It was tough but necessary. He said, we're downtown trying to get a marriage license. We'll wait till Monday to move in can you marry us after church on Sunday? So I got done preaching that Sunday, and we went out on the church playground across the parking lot, had ourselves a little wedding. It was five of us, six of us there. The two of them, Gio and I, and two witnesses. And we sealed the deal. And they were able to move in the next day as husband and wife. That was a whole other difficult conversation to have with their families, but it was a better one (laughs) than the one they were gonna have. Now, what he saw was something special. He saw something special in her. In that moment, because he was confronted with the truth, he was able to see that he had something special and make a choice. He chose to fight for her. Instead of just to run away or be passive aggressive or make excuses, he chose to fight for her. You know that we all make our choices to what to fight for? We, we all make that choice every day. And really it's astounding to me when we've been married for a while, especially the things we choose to fight for and the things we choose to be nonchalant about. We fight for things like fantasy football drafts and lineups and we fight for things like, you know, fashion statements and, and school placements and we fight for things like, uh, you know, uh, music lessons and all the stuff that our kids are doing. We fight for all these other things and we're nonchalant about the foundation on which our family stands, our connection with each other and our unified connection with Jesus. We're nonchalant about the thing we should be fighting for the most because we've been lulled to sleep by the repetition of time. And we forget to fight for our relationship. We forget to fight for this new life that we have between us, this one flesh that we share. We forget that it needs to be nourished. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be grown and developed. And that doesn't stop on your wedding day. It just is getting started on your wedding day. Men, we forget to fight for our wives and their hearts. We forget to pursue them like we pursued them before. And women, you forget to fight for your husbands and to pursue them and to woo them like you did before. Because you feel like your romantic days are behind you when in fact they could be in front of you. If you're married or if you're in a deep committed long-term relationship, your relationship is either alive or it's dying. It's either growing or it's wasting away. And so you have this life between you. You can choose to fight or you can choose to surrender. To fight for that life is to protect it and defend it at all costs. To be willing to even die for it. To surrender is just to be kind of lazy and nonchalant and let it be whatever it is. And I'm calling you to fight. Men, fight for your wife again. Swallow your pride. And step up to the plate and Fight. Don't be nonchalant. Don't reach for the remote control. First thing when you get home at night, don't turn away from her in bed. Turn toward her and fight for her heart. Admit it when you've been wrong and take it and absorb it. If she's wronged you, wives, fight for your husbands. Forgive him if he's wronged you. Ask for forgiveness if you've been in the wrong. Look, this is so essential to who we are. This is so important and so rich with possibility when you embrace it, when you choose to fight for the things that matter. Fight for one another, husbands and wives. Never stop. Never stop dating. Never stop dating. You didn't stop dating on your wedding day. Your dating was just beginning. Swipe right on each other until death do you part. Like never ever stop seeing in each other the what you saw when you first began and even more see who they are today and where you're going together. Be intentional. Be direct choose each other and fight for each other. Take up your cross and die for each other. This is the life that Jesus lays before you. And if you want to see it in its fullness and in its glory, it doesn't involve you living for yourself. It involves you putting your own needs aside on the back burner and putting your beloved's needs ahead of yours. That's where the glory is. That's where the beauty is. That's what we're created to do. That's how we're created to love, is to cultivate that life that God has given us together. I'm going to say a little prayer to wrap us up and to wrap up this series. And if you're in a relationship or if you're married, I'm going to say a special prayer over you. If you're dating, I pray that this message today, the second part of it at least, was kind of a season, a time of preparation in the season that you're in for the season that's coming. We're planting seeds so that you know what to be praying for and what God should be doing in your heart to prepare you for the season ahead. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, um, wake us up. Just wake us up because we have been awakened to things that don't matter so much. We've been asleep with things that do. And so wake us up to those things, Lord, before we waste them away, before they're gone. Wake us up and help us to see what we have right in front of us. Help us to seize the moment, to be decisive, to be men and women of God who walk by faith. To seize that moment when it's in front of us, God to be clear and intentional about the ways that we love each other. We thank you for Jesus who models that kind of love for us, who came and lived and died for our sake so that we could be in eternal relationship with you. We pray today in Jesus' name, amen.